Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried about and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. In recent years, the expression, you are what you eat, has been everywhere. We read it on book titles, magazine articles, television, etc. And most of these uh, popular references address issues related to diet, nutrition, and health, healthy lifestyles. The phrase encapsulated uh, the notion that our health, our happiness, our well-being are inseparably, inseparably in, interconnected with what we eat. And science has proved that certain diets, such as the Mediterranean diet of olive oil and vegetables, fruits and nuts, uh, does promote health, reduce heart conditions, and promotes longevity. However, the phrase is not new. Way back in 1825, Jean Athelim Brilat Savarian, uh, you know him, a French politician, judge, and food critic, published a book in which he made the statement, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you who you are, from which derives our modern abridgment, you are what you eat. But he was not directly speaking about the health benefits of one's diet. Rather, he was suggesting was something much more profound, namely the tight link between human cultures and food and identity especially at that time before travel was worldwide and the world was smaller and the universal exposure to foods, certain people ate certain foods. The ancient Greeks considered certain foods and diets an indication of whether a people group was civilized or barbaric. In describing the Gauls who inhabited modern-day France and other parts of northern Europe, classical writers such as Strabo commented, Uh, on the length of their foodways, the Gauls slept and ate on the ground and consumed large quantities of meat, which they devoured like lions, grasping whole joints with both hands and biting them off at the bone. The Roman historian Taxicus similarly wrote of the northern European Feni around the Baltic areas that they, quote, ate the roots of wild plants and the half-raw flesh of any kind of animal whatever. The emphasis on raw meat and plants was a way to dehumanize what Greeks and Romans considered uncivilized people by equating their food habits with those of animals. And in the Old Testament times, God gave the Israelites dietary laws which would primarily separate them from the Gentiles. As one writer states, a central component of this system is a very detailed dietary code intended to serve both as a daily reminder to the Israelites 
and the clear line of demarcation to their neighbors of the differences between them. Because food was and is so important, the Bible often uses food as an analogy, an illustration demonstrating aspects of spiritual food or heavenly manner, which is God's word. Someone pointed to the vital importance of God's word, writing, Our lives consist of many matters, but the foremost matter for our physical survival is food. When we haven't eaten in a while, we become, it becomes very clear that everything else is secondary. Only eating food satisfies our hunger and nourishes us. Without eating, we simply cannot continue to exist. And in the same way, the foremost matter for believers is to be healthy and grow in the divine life is to eat spiritual food. But what is our spiritual food? Well, God gave us his word to be spiritual food. So even more than studying the Bible, we actually need to eat it. Nothing is more important to our Christian life than our being nourished with the Word of God. Biblical knowledge can't help us if we're spiritually famished and consequently weak and dying. God's primary concern for us is that we would be living and growing by eating the Word of God as our food. Consider how many times throughout the Bible... Uh, God's word is equated with food. Just one example, Deuteronomy 8.4, which Jesus quotes in the wilderness in his battle with Satan. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And food forms the background to this little account about Martha and Mary. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples and he comes upon this village, which elsewhere is called Bethany. It is here, excuse me, it is here that he meets two sisters, Martha and Mary. Later in the Gospel of John, we discover that they also had at least one brother, Lazarus. Martha is almost always mentioned first, so it is probably safe to assume that she was the oldest of the two. That's usually the way it goes in Scripture either the oldest or the most prominent. And it's a Martha who welcomes Jesus, as the scripture says, opened her, opened her home to him. She's a, probably a widow since there's no mention of her husband. And one thing is definite, Martha was a most hospitable hostess. It appears she immediately started to prepare food for Jesus and his 12 disciples. Don't you know that lady when people just show up? Oh, yeah, and I have my friends with me. Uh, She did it without hesitation. Mary, on the other hand, sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Her heart, her soul, her mind is hungry, and she must voraciously eat his every word. And such action gives us insight into her heart's hunger to hear the words of the Master. Joanna Weaver, in her book, Having a Merry Heart in a Martha World, humorously describes the difference between the two sisters as this. Mary's bent was to meander through life, pausing to smell the roses. 
Martha was more likely to pick the roses, quickly cut the stems off on an angle, and arrange them in a vase with baby breaths and ferns. Martha was the Martha Stewart of Bethany. But in another important sense, this was a highly unusual scene. Culturally, sitting at the feet of a teacher was the position of a disciple, a student. And at that time, women were not encouraged and often prohibited from such a place. In fact, some later Jewish rabbis were so harsh that they wrote, quote, the words of the Torah should, not, should be burned rather than entrusted to women. And another wrote that even if they were taught, and even though that she earns a reward, the sages have commanded that a, a man shall not teach his daughter Torah, because most women are not intellectually capable of study, but render words of Torah nonsense because of their ignorance. Don't shoot the messenger, I'm just quoting. But Jesus once again breaks down cultural barriers and permits Mary to sit in the place of a disciple to listen to his teaching. And it's this type of behavior all along that made Jesus a radical in the eyes of the religious leaders. He healed on the Sabbath. He touched the leper. He spoke to a Samaritan woman. He ate with sinners. And here he not only permits but applauds Mary's position at his feet as a disciple. Throughout Jesus' life, we see how he valued women and elevated their status by breaking down discriminatory social norms of the day. Gretchen Gabelin Hull makes that point. She says, quote, The message of this familiar story was and is revolutionary because it taught that women should prefer studying theology over preoccupation with chores. That is not to say that Scripture demeans homemaking, but in this crucial passage... Jesus taught that following him must take priority and that learning about him is the most important occupation in life. If Jesus had wished to teach that studying theology is a male prerogative, this would have been an ideal place to do that. He could have said, Yes, Mary, you must go and help Martha. It's inappropriate for you to be here with men. Yet Jesus did just the opposite. And the text goes on, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha had a servant's heart, and she sought to use her talent in making Jesus and the others well cared for. That was all commendable. The scriptures, both old and new, put a premium on service and hospitality. But the key word here is distracted. It means just what we think it means, to be drawn away, to be overoccupied, too busy. And it also indicates that Martha wanted one thing, but was distracted by something else. Drawn away by something else. Apparently, Martha wanted to sit and listen also, but allowed her service to trump that desire. What started out well for Martha 
Her desire to serve was turning into frustration and anger. And she felt abandoned by her sister. It appears that Mary had started to help Martha at one point. One can imagine when Jesus and the disciples came in that the ladies ran out and started cooking up whatever they cooked up really quick in those days. But as soon as Jesus started to speak, Mary left Martha and took her position at the feet of Jesus. Finally, Martha had had enough. Her anger, frustration boiled over and she steps right up to Jesus, interrupting him to complain. Think of that something like if Helen just came walking up here while I'm preaching, Bob, you're preaching too long. I have the hot lunch ready in the room, ram room and I need the deaconess's help, so end it now and tell him to come out here and help me. Now, if that happened, I'm sure that would be remembered far more than the sermon I was preaching. Remember that day when Helen got up there? You know. But that was the type of shock that this would have been to interrupt the teacher. Not only does Martha complain loudly about it being unfair that she has to do all the work, but she has the audacity to tell Jesus what to do. Don't you care? Tell her to help me. Ouch. You see what anger can do? It blinds you to the reality of what's happening. Bite your tongue, Martha. You have just reproached and given a command to the Messiah. I mean, she even addressed them as Lord, but wanted to control the situation. And in her eyes, he was not being fair. At this point, Jesus gives a tender rebuke to Martha. It would have been very interesting to know just how he says this. You know, is Martha complaining so loudly that he's like, Martha, Martha! Trying to get her attention, you know, kind of slap her. Wake up! I think it's probably much more tender. Just tilting his head and saying, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now we should keep in mind that Jesus loved Martha as much as he loved Mary. In fact, we're told this directly in John 11.5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And this was a gentle rebuke to Martha because she had lost sight of what mattered most. And sometimes in life, we settle for what is good rather than for what is best. And such is the case here. But Martha's service also revealed her sin in allowing worry and anxiety to keep her from what was best. Martha had become overwhelmed and allowed her busyness to rob her of the opportunity to draw closer to her Lord. On the other hand, Mary had chosen what is better, or the good portion. The word portion has to do with food. It was the best part of the meat. While Martha fussed about physical food, she was missing out on the good portion, or the spiritual food, which was Jesus' teaching. 
To listen to the words of Jesus is intimately connected to knowing the heart of Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus would not take away that from Mary. She needed to know his teaching. And Jerome long ago said, ignorance of the scripture is ignorance of Christ. And obviously, this applies to our busy lives as well. And all the distractions that we allow to push in and and usurp the importance of hearing God's word where and when we can, like in attending church and Bible studies or Sunday school or quiet times. In the busyness of family events and kids' sports and recreation, we, we lower the priority of sitting at the feet of Jesus. Those of you who have kids, ask yourselves, uh, do your kids hear things like, you've got to keep your eye on the ball more than you've got to keep your eyes on Christ? And even if you do miss church, do you see to it that your children make it up or that you make it up? And by that I mean, do you maybe go to the YouTube and and listen to the service you missed? Do you make sure you share a devotional with your younger kids, maybe before they go to bed that night? If your kids missed a meal, would you let them go hungry? Oh yeah, tomorrow you'll eat. Why let them miss a spiritual meal and think it's not important? She probably won't like this, but I'm going to use my daughter, Heather, as an example. She listens to my sermon, so I know I'm going to get it when I go out there. But she has two, two of my grandkids. Haley at 13, plays soccer on two teams, all right, school team and a travel team, Noah. 11, he's on a swim team and a travel team. So you parents who have kids involved in sports know that you become a taxi driver, and you're like here, there, and everywhere, all right? And needless to say, a lot of, the, a lot of that goes on, and uh, trying to plan a meal is like impossible. Um, but the kids got to eat. So Heather is, is very diligent in making sure that somehow or other, you know, whether the car is flying by and you're throwing a sandwich out at them, or even now Helen and I are involved in bringing a uh, a packed lunch for Haley in between games that they eat. Somehow, somewhere, that they eat. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how demanding the schedule, they get something to eat. It's a good thing. But Heather also works his schedule in regards to that spiritual meal. Now, unfortunately, some of the games are on Sunday. And they miss church. But she makes sure that they go to evening service at the church. Or she makes sure that they attend the youth group at church that week. Or she makes sure that they sit and they just have their study together. Because she doesn't want them to go hungry from God's word. 1 Timothy 4.6 reads, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished 
on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Nourished on God's Word, like a good meal, strengthens us to be good ministers of Christ Jesus. And we are all ministers of the gospel of reconciliation by God's grace and calling. As such, we should want to be the very best by desiring the very best. David Gooding points out, amid all life's duties and necessities, there is one supreme necessity which must always be given priority and which, if circumstances compel us to choose, must be chosen to the exclusion of all others. That supreme necessity is to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his word. It must be so. If there is a creator at all, and that creator is prepared to visit us and speak to us as in his incarnation he visited and spoke to Martha and Mary, then obviously it is our first duty as his creatures, as it ought to be our highest pleasure to sit at his feet and listen to what he says. You see, there's a very subtle danger that we can fill our lives with service and allow service to become our focus rather than the one we serve. This is a particular danger to those most involved in service and church ministry. Professor Rankin sounds the alarm, writing, how easy it is to get distracted, even when we are serving the Lord. We begin serving because we are attracted to Jesus and want to show him our love. So we get involved in helping children or reaching out to the poor or teaching the Bible or some other form of Christian service. But soon we get distracted by the problems we have in ministry or even by the work of the ministry itself. Sometimes we even forget to pray for God's blessing without which our service can accomplish nothing at all. <clears throat> Entire churches and denominations can drift into this era, era becoming champions of the social gospel, of helps, while the relationship with Christ suffers and the gospel message of salvation is relegated to the periphery or forgotten entirely. Dallas Willard made a powerful and insightful statement when he said, the greatest enemy of intimacy with God is service to God. Let me read that again. The greatest enemy of intimacy with God is service for God. We must be very careful that our service does not usurp the place of Christ and developing a deeper relationship with him through hearing his word and studying his word. Being in church and Sunday school is to sit at the feet of Jesus and allow the word of God to feed you, to grow you, and to deepen your love for Jesus. The Apostle Peter exhorted believers to desire the word, 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Just as food is essential for a healthy physical life, God's Word is essential for a spiritually healthy life. Without it, a Christian can suffer from a, a failure-to-thrive syndrome 
spiritual anorexia that leaves one stunted, immature, weak, and vulnerable to attack from the enemy. Hebrews 5.14, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You are what you eat. And by a daily, consistent diet of God's Word, you become spiritually mature and more like Christ. This is why God gave the church apostles and pastors and teachers to equip the saints so that, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Our goal is maturity in Christ. To have a robust spirituality and healthy spiritual life. And we can't get that unless we feed upon God's Word. You are what you eat. Martha and Mary both matured. Mary listened at the feet of Jesus and understood before all the others that Jesus was on his way to die. And later she anointed him with oil in preparation for his burial. Mary listened as well and boldly proclaimed faith in the resurrection when they stood before Lazarus' tomb. Rankin again says, they believe these things because they both did the one thing that is needed, which is to listen to Jesus with the full attention of a loving heart. You know, that Frenchman was right. You can tell a great deal about a person and their culture by what they eat. A Christian, and usually only a Christian, eats a certain food which he finds delicious and satisfying. It's the Word of God. The psalmist wrote, The decrees of the Lord, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Such is God's Word. You are what you eat. So Christian, what are you eating? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you and we thank you so much for your word. Your word is life. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would always be diligent students of your word, that we may know you better, that we may grow more intimate in our knowledge of you and closer to you. And in that way, Lord, our service will be effective. Help us to keep our priorities straight in this life, Lord. Help us never say we're too busy for you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.